Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series, Walking Through the Book Through New Eyes by James Jordan, and here the guys will be in chapter 14, discussing the world of the patriarchs. We do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes, specifically our upcoming online course with Alistair Roberts and James B. John on biblical numerology. You can find more information about that class and a link to register in the show notes. We hope that you enjoy this conversation and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Through New Eyes, Chapter 14. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts. Uh, Jeff Myers, who is usually with us, is still at a presbytery meeting uh, and uh, will not be able to join us this morning. Brian Motes, as usual, is running everything that, on the technical side of things. First things first, before I even tell you what we're talking about today, uh, during the pre-recording, the pre-episode recording, we discovered in our conversation that James B. John has performed as an actor. Uh, that by itself is worth commenting on and, and hearing about. But more importantly, James B. John has performed in Shakespeare plays that had been translated into biblical Hebrew. So James, you're going you're gonna to tell us about that experience, how it started, how you got into it, what it was like, what plays, what plays uh, if you can remember, what plays you were in, and so on. <laughs> okay. Um, well, yeah, that, that, that is true. I was, now where was I? I was at UCL at the time. So this is um, University College London. And there was some sort of festival in, entitled the Jews in in Europe and um one of the one of the things people were looking at was translations of classical uh English or, or other European works into Hebrew and particularly into kind of a biblical style of Hebrew and um yeah one of the one of the tutors um at UCL was translating and I think probably still is translating various of Shakespeare's um plays into biblical Hebrew and um yeah she she put one of them on and it was um yeah it it, it, it was great fun one, one of the things I remember it uh from it was that um a few of the people uh actors you could loosely call them um who were involved in it had I think they're probably at the end of their first year uh biblical Hebrew so they hadn't done much and it, it was really stilting it was really difficult to kind of get things going at a decent pace and so um uh i found a website where you could just paste in hebrew and it would just kind of transliterate it into english um for you and so people could just read out their lines or paragraphs quite quickly and um when my uh hebrew teacher discovered that i i had done this in order to get things off the ground she said i i disapprove of this website that transliterates <laughs> Hebrew in every single context apart from this one. <laughs> so it was um, it, it was sanctioned for that purpose. Yeah. So were all the actors uh, familiar, at least to some degree, with biblical Hebrew? You weren't, no, there wasn't anybody who just was reading off the transcribed version. Um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think most people kind of learned their lines pretty much wrote. Um, oh. uh, do, you, do you mean like were people ad-libbing or no, no. I mean, were people? Um, does it? Did everyone who was acting know some Hebrew? So they oh, yeah. they kind of knew yeah. what they were saying. In other words, yeah, oh, <laughs> they yeah. weren't just making yeah. sounds. No, they weren't. They weren't just making <laughs> sounds. Um, no, that's right. And and it was um, uh, obviously when you're, uh, you know, obviously the Hebrew that people would have spoken in the biblical um, period was a vast language, and we have you know a, a chunk of it perhaps an iceberg of it or something preserved uh top of an iceberg uh preserved in the biblical text and so when you're translating something like romeo and juliet which was one of the things we were doing you're you're kind of you're really straining you're trying to do everything you can with the biblical vocab to kind of um convey the right um concepts and so on and so it, it's quite it's quite good fun you're you're trying to sort of 
milk the biblical corpus's um vocab for for its maximum value which yeah. is yeah which is nice i'm also curious about audience Who, who's listening to this yeah pretty pretty niche audience you you <laughs> you would think for things like this um people were obviously following because they were kind of laughing uh, at the right times you know so um it, it, um but yeah I, I would guess the sort of jewish studies um it was done out of the jewish studies department at, at ucl and it was probably sort of friends and associates so um yeah yeah pretty niche i'm curious when it comes to biblical hebrew how we would arrive at an estimate of what percentage of the actual vocabulary of the spoken Hebrew comes down to us within the text. Do you have any knowledge of the way that we'd arrive at such an estimate, James? No, I, I don't, I'm afraid. It, it's something I've thought about and, and others have as well. I mean, it's undeniably true that kind of in rabbinic Hebrew and um, sort of Mishnaic Hebrew and so forth, you've just got an absolutely enormous um vocabulary you know um and now okay that's a fair bit later um but yeah it, it's incredibly hard, hard to say i mean i have for instance found uh names in the bible which were clearly understood um and yet aren't attested as words in the bible um but appear later on in Mishnaic Hebrew. So um, what's a good example? So let's say there are a couple of um, Issacharites, two of Issachar's sons are called Tola and Pua. Now, um, Tola is a word for a worm, particularly the worm that you get scarlet dye from. And so as a verb, it can be used um, like to, to describe scarlet clothes and so on. Um, Pua isn't attested anywhere in scripture, but it turns up in um, uh, rabbinic texts and it refers to madder if that means anything to you so that's like a plant um uh, a plant dye which produces a scarlet um dye and those two names are uniquely um uh Issacharite names and are, are kind of closely connected you get one father and son combo um Toler and Pua and then you get two brothers Toler and, and Pua and and so people clearly knew what this word meant um uh but it's not used in in the bible and i mean there must have been thousands of words like that a couple of questions before we move on from the your uh your thespian career james um <laughs> so uh, w was this actually enacted or are you talking about everybody reading in front of an audience no no this this, this was performed you yeah, know with okay, uh, yeah. with with props there were kind of acted out sword fights and and, and so on it was the full yeah it was the full yeah. works yeah, yeah. And uh, you're going to have to recite some lines. Um, oh, goodness. It was too long ago. <laughs> um, what on earth can I remember? I, I could probably remember my opening line. Now, what, what would this have been? I was, I think, walking on stage with someone who, I think they were Nadav. So I don't know what that would have, like every name got a, a near equivalent. Um, I can't think of which character that might have been. And um, uh he said something to me, and I had to reply um, saying, "Lama sim," which is kind of why, why should we be like mere woodcutters? Um, uh, <laughs> uh, now I can't think what that might have been. I'm sure that was Romeo and Juliet. Um, so, like sim, I think is is borrowed from like Joshua nine. The, the Gibeonites are. Oh. Um, Condemned uh -huh. to be sort of servants and uh, drawers of water, they are and, and cutters of wood, and, and so I, I would guess it wasn't meant to convey exactly woodcutters, but it, it was kind of probably seen as a, a a near equivalent. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks for uh, thanks for indulging me in in talking about that on the podcast. Um, uh, in future episodes, we're going to reveal other layers of uh, James B. John's background and. Um, set of skills. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about his career as a blues musician uh, in a future episode <laughs> and uh, a pantomime on the streets of London, uh, so on and so forth. That, that'll that be a, from here on out, I think that'll be a regular feature of the podcast. <laughs> time to get to the business of the podcast. We are in the middle of a series of studies in uh, James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, subtitled Developing a Biblical View of the World. And we are going through part four at this point. Uh, he's looking at different 
eras of biblical history. He's trying to describe the political situation in each era. He's trying to describe the religious situation. What is the name of God that's highlighted in this particular era? What are the people of God called in this particular era? Uh, and as I mentioned in the last episode, I think one of the strengths of Jim's book is that although he's, it's it's a it's a kind of covenant theology, where he's showing there's this developing uh, covenant that goes all the way through uh, as one growing and a modifying uh, reality. He also is very attentive to the discontinuities between different covenants. So there's a in a sense he's acknowledging and making making room for some of the insights of uh, dispensational scholars who recognize and are attentive to those uh, more drastic discontinuities from covenant to covenant. Jim Jim is able to incorporate those into a storyline that's much that's basically highlighting the continuity from covenant to covenant. I wanted to highlight a couple of things by way of introduction. Uh, the first is a, a pattern that Jim highlights in this chapter as he has in other previous chapters. I don't think we've talked about it, however. At the beginning of, of the Bible, God creates a world in this order. He sets up a the heavens and the earth, the cosmos. Then there's attention to the land and the needs of the land at the beginning of chapter two of Genesis. And then God sets up a garden. So he starts on the big scale, setting up the universe, then focuses down on the land, which is going to be the Adam's homeland. It's the source of the rivers that flow through the Garden of Eden. Uh, it's the place that is doesn't have any plants, is not yet cultivated because there's no man and there's no rain. And then God plants a garden. And that that sequence Jim sees also going on in, in other recreation, recreation events, recreation episodes of the Bible. Uh, that ordering is how God creates the world at the beginning. It's also the world how God how God recreates the world after the flood. So the first thing we discover right after the flood is the uh, reordering of the nations. We have the list of the 70 nations of the earth in Genesis 10, the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So there's a, as in the original creation, there's the large scale is at the beginning. Uh, and then uh, when Abram is called, one of the promises that's immediately given to Abram is a promise of land. Abram doesn't dwell in that land. He sojourns in the land. Uh, he doesn't yet settle in the land permanently, uh, but the land is given to him on a promissory, in a promissory way. So there's a focus on the land in the stories of Abraham. And it's not until the Mosaic era that we have the planting of a new garden with the tabernacle being a reconstituted and architectural form of the Garden of Eden. So, uh, uh, and Jim is going to make that, uh, uh, draw attention to this pattern elsewhere. There's going to be a reordering of the geopolitical situation. There's going to be re a focus on the land uh, and on Israel's life in the land, and then uh, a focus on the sanctuary uh, and the building of a new sanctuary. And I think what this is, this is the kind of pattern that I think it's useful. Uh, pastorally, it's useful as we think about uh, how to react and think think about the the events of our own time. Uh, it's the kind of biblical pattern that gives us insight into how things are moving. We do seem to be, for example, uh, in the last 50 years, we have undergone something like a geopolitical rearrangement of the world. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the world was divided into two hostile camps. They're two, you know, the, uh, the two blocks, the Soviet bloc and the, the free world set over against each other. And the pl politics of all the lesser players were determined by that binary structure between the free world in Europe and North America and uh, in uh, Russia. So you have proxy wars going on in um, in uh, Southeast Asia, you have proxy wars going on in Africa, you have movements in South, uh, South and Central and South America that are sponsored by uh, the Soviet bloc. You have uh, the, the Western, Western world meddling in all kinds of ways in the same portions of the world. So the geopol geopolitics is all this based on this binary um, or largely based on this binary contrast between the free world and the and the communist world, but that's gone. We don't live in that world anymore. That that ended in uh, the 1990s. It looked like we were in a monopolar world for a while, and then we, beginning of the uh, 21st century, uh, we have a number of hits to that monopolar world. It doesn't look like the U.S. is going to be uh, the dominate dominating force of the 21st century. There's the the rise of radical Islam that that uh, it comes to you know most visible expression to Americans at least in the attack on the World Trade Center. You have nationalist movements arising. 
You have the rise of China as an economic power. Uh, you have Russia that is still um, a significant player on the world stage. And so it's a much more complicated situation that, than you. So that would be an example of God rearranging the world, God taking hold of a world, rearranging the power structures of the world. Uh, if the sequence holds, then we should be seeing some kind of land sequence. I, I suspect we're still in that kind of geopolitical. Uh, there's not a new geopolitical world that has taken form yet. We're still in flux. And then there's a uh, focus on some uh, some uh, land and then and then after the Lord has remade the world and reestablished his people in a land or lands, uh, then there's the erection of a new of a new sanctuary. Uh, so if we if we think about the, uh, our own history at our own time in that in that uh, in the light of that biblical pattern, then we can kind of make sense where we we're not perhaps as alarmed by the upheavals uh, that are have gone on over the last number of decades. Uh, and we can see that the Lord is at work there as he was at work in the past uh, to reorder the world and something something else is emerging from that. So that's that's a, that's the first general point. The, the other point I want to make, I'll, I'll try to make it more briefly, is the importance that uh, through Nuai's places throughout on the early chapters of Genesis and the patterns of uh, that he that Jim lays out uh, in the section where he talks about the furniture of the world, when he talks about the the uh, the structures of the original creation. Uh, and those structures and patterns and symbolisms are going to come up persistently throughout the Old Testament into the New, throughout the Bible. Uh, and keeping that connection with Genesis 1 through 3 in mind is crucial for understanding what's happening. Uh, and there were a couple of great examples in this chapter, chapter 14, which is the world of the patriarchs. He points out, for example, that uh, Abraham has promised that his seed will be like the dust and his seed will be like the stars of the heavens. We think of those, I think, immediately as both references to uh, numerical growth. There's going to be as many descendants of Abraham as there are stars in the sky. There are going to be as many descendants of Abraham as there are grains of dust or sand, grains of sand on the seashore. Uh, but Jim points out when you when you take uh, stars and dust back to that original cosmology of Genesis one, then what is being promised is not just numerical, but it's also a heaven and earth structure. Abraham's seed is going to be uh, like a new heavens and a new earth. And specifically, as Jim has pointed out earlier in the book, the stars in the sky represent rulers. The dust, of course, fills the earth. And so we have this combination of ruling from heaven, filling the earth, uh, which connects us with the original commission to Adam to have dominion, subdue the earth, to fill it, and so on. And so when you put all those pieces together, the promise to Abraham is a promise that through his seed, his seed is going to be the fulfillment of that uh, of humanity's uh, destiny, the original the original commission to given to Abraham is going to be fulfilled in Abraham's seed, and then you can add the Christological layer, uh, or it's not just a layer, but you can recognize the Christ Christological import of that. Uh, to say that Jesus is the seed of Abraham is to say that he fulfills that promise of a kind of cosmic new people. Jesus is the new heavens and new earth in person. Uh, so that's that. That's one example. The other example that I thought was uh, was intriguing in this chapter is to pay attention to the the kind of weird things that the patriarchs do. Uh, when you read the patriarch patriarchal narratives, there's a lot of emphasis placed on barrenness and childbirth. There's emphasis placed on the promise of the land, but not the uh, not the settling in the land, of course. Um, but then they do all kinds of weird things in the land. Why is there so much emphasis on wells? Why are they constantly uh, finding themselves uh, in groves of trees and setting up altars under trees? Uh, several times the patriarchs established pillars uh, in the promised land. What, what was all this? Can we make sense? Is the coherence to all these things that they're doing? And again, we go back to the early chapters of Genesis, and we can see that the patriarchs are setting up something like um, Edenic centers throughout the land. Uh, they're going to places where there are trees, groves of trees. Uh, they're going to uh, uh, places that that, that are Eden-like in that respect, that are well-watered. Uh, they're setting up pillars, which are like small, uh, and altars, which are like small holy mountains. They're digging wells so that they can draw up water from the wells and the, and the land can become well-watered and so on. So th there's a kind of identification of the land uh, that they're doing, not, not fully, but in these small parts, uh, in anticipation, ultimately, of entering the land and turning the whole land into a a, a, gar a garden land. But again, the, the the hermeneutical point that I'm drawing from this is the the importance of keeping Genesis one through three in mind constantly, 
to see the coherence of these different images that are used and the different actions of the patriarchs. One thing I've found helpful in Jordan's work is his resistance of the common sense of a very sharp disconnect between the opening 11 chapters of Genesis and what follows. And so in the previous chapter, and then also in this, he deals with the um, background in the story of Babel and Nimrod um, for the story of the patriarchs. Abraham is called against the backdrop of some sort of prehistory. And that prehistory is that of chapter 11 and 10, and particularly the attempt to build this great city and tower to make the name of the people great. Nimrod is a mighty hunter, a sort of imperial military leader who's trying to form this great empire that the great cities that he founds are cities that we read of later on in scripture, places like Babel and Nineveh. And his kingdom is that which is the backdrop for the story of Babel. And then when Abraham is called, he's called in many ways as an answer to the problem that is set up in chapter 11. So man's attempt to make his name great, to avoid being dispersed, Abraham is called and promised that the Lord will make his name great. He is, from the very outset, dispersed. He's sent out from his country and from his father's house and from his kinsfolk, and he has to go to a land that the Lord is going to show him. And there are these deep unifying themes between chapters 11 and 12 that overcome the sense of a, a, a radical disconnect that many people have, this idea of a, um, prehistory that exists before the calling of the patriarchs. And then you have the story of the patriarchs, which is a different sort of story. But within Jordan's account, it's very clear there is a, a movement, even though there are scenes within the story, things like the flood and things like the destruction of Babel, these do represent, represent breakdown of a particular order. But there is a continuity throughout those. And that, I find, is a very important point that people tend to lose sight of. And there's even a continuity, isn't there, between those uh, breakdowns of the order. So you could legitimately see, I think, um, Jim has spoken about this kind of decline into judgment that goes on. The the world of the flood is this submerged world, submerged in water, and it's become, again, kind of formless um, and, and, and sort of... Um, covered and, and, and lifeless and, and, and so on. And um, strikes me as very similar in some ways to the um, the post-Babel world immediately after um, that judgment. The kind of peoples and nations have kind of been scattered all over the world. It, it seems like, again, a, a kind of formless um, uh Kind of just mass in in the sense in which peoples are often nations often likened to um uh to water you know and obviously against that backdrop just as kind of Shem Ham and Japheth um emerge you get Terah Nachor and, and Abraham emerging you know and and so it, it feels like you've got um a, a parallel there as well. One thing I hadn't noticed before, which my wife Susanna drew my attention to, is. When you read through chapter 11 and the list of the, um, the ages of the sons of Shem, the thing that sticks out is the fact that they're decreasing at a very rapid rate. And so the story of Babel is a story in a world set in a world where it seems that death is hot on the heels, um, that people just aren't living as long. There's a sense of mortality and of things disintegrating. And so this attempt to make a great name, to endure in the face of death and in the face of the threat of this encroaching disintegration and of the Lord's purpose that man should spread out, that is the answer to the, the threat of death. Whereas within the story of Abraham, we have a very different response to the threat of death. At the beginning of the story of Abraham, we have the call, as it were, to give up and surrender the things that would seem to promise some sort of continuity beyond death, the legacy of his fathers. And then at the very end of his story, we have another event that's paralleled with it, where he has to give up his future 
to sacrifice his son. And so in both of these stories, we see responses to the threat of death, the one trusting in the Lord's power to give life from the dead, and the other, the power of man to establish his name and his fame beyond the um, erosion of the centuries. That's an interesting insight. It it, it uh, fits somewhat with the uh, suggestion that Jim makes that uh, the Tower of Babel is uh, almost, uh, he sees it as a kind of throwback, a restorationist kind of effort. Um, the nations are scattered or at least uh, enumerated in Genesis 10. Jim sees that as a post-flood phenomenon where you have this variety of nations and suspects that based on, um, again, some very, very uh, speculates on the basis of hints that are in uh, the pre-flood narratives that the world prior to the flood was a world like Babel uh, that had one central uh, center and and uh, the nations were not uh, scattered about and divided. It's like in the face of this encroaching death that Alistair described, there's a there's an attempt to secure uh, secure our uh, civilization, our humanity, but doing that by reaching back to the pre-flood uh, geopolitics and trying to re- resurrect that. Yeah, I was thinking something along those lines, Peter. Like in um, chapter five genealogy, you get that uh, repetition of and he died, and uh, you know after each person, and so obviously the spread of of death uh, is being charted out there here as you said Susanna mentioned Alistair it's um decreasing life you, you don't get the same refrain and he died um and you don't get the same uh, decrease in in uh in lifespan in chapter five either so you've got kind of a new in- ingredient here um and I wonder if the sense of kind of decreasing life uh lifespans is you you are then losing something of the past you, you don't have these individuals who have seen the last 900 years of history and and so you you're kind of losing a, a collective memory as a result of this more rapidly turning over um population and it, it then makes sense to me that babel is is particularly a, a kind of man-made attempt to um to counteract that you know to to come together and develop this kind of almost memory within a city to have that kind of um, collective memory established. One of the themes that Jim spends a lot of time with in this chapter is that of Exodus. And he's mentioned that in different connections in uh, relation to Noah. Uh, Noah goes through a kind of Exodus. And of course, the big Exodus is going is still to come. He's talking about the world of the patriarchs in this chapter. But this is the chapter where he lays out the big structure of uh, of Exodus and the recurring patterns of Exodus in the Bible. And he does that because uh, the patriarchs undergo this the, these uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of events. Uh, Abraham goes into Egypt, and you have a number of uh, specific things that happen while he's in Egypt that are anticipating what's going to happen to Israel once they go to Egypt. Uh, and uh, Jacob goes out of the land and goes over to live with Laban. And uh, again, you have specific uh, details of his life in uh, Paddan Aram that uh, are like the life of Israel in Egypt. And then he goes through an exodus. He flees by night. And as he flees, uh, he plunders his uh, plunders his uh, employer, his, his, un- uh, his uncle. And uh, his wife sits on the household gods. There's a humiliation of the gods there. So uh, and then he returns into the land, finally coming across the the Jabbok into the land, and then of course at the end of the the last uh, thirteen chapters of Genesis are about uh, Joseph and the descent into Egypt that's setting up for the story of the Exodus in the following book. But uh, so there are Exodus stories, small scale Exodus stories in uh, the book of Genesis, and so Jim highlights that as a as a recurring theme of the Bible, uh, drawing on the work of David Dabe. The Exodus Pattern in Scripture, a book from, I think it was published in the 50s or 60s of the 20th century, 1950s or 60s. Uh, but he, a very in very detailed way, lays out the, the recurring pattern that you see. That There's certain things that you see that you can uh, you can say there's an, there's an Exodus going on here. If you see a nighttime deliverance, uh, there's an allusion to Passover and the night of departure from the Exodus. If you see plagues, uh, if you see the humiliation of the idols, if you see the people of God plundering their enemies. Often, uh, if you see the people of God moving out of a place of 
threats into a place of prosperity and blessing and, and freedom. These particular details highlight uh, uh, they aren't all present together in every Exodus story, but there's enough continuity between these different Exodus stories to see a recurring uh, a recurring pattern. A notion that Jim introduces, well, I, th- I think it's for the first time in this book, um, is the idea of a counterfeit pattern. Um, and so here, uh, the idea of a counterfeit exodus. And I'm on page um, 187 now, and Jim picks the particular example of Judges 17 to 18. And he says here, um, so this is, by, by the way, um, where the uh, Danites don't want to take their own inheritance because it's too difficult. And so they head up and head out and come across this unsuspecting people and take their land instead. And he says, he, Jim says, here we read of the erection of a counterfeit tabernacle and the ordaining of a counterfeit priest. Subsequently, we have a counterfeit journey by apostate, apostate Danites who had rejected the land God gave them. And this issues in a counterfeit conquest. And that, um, that's something that comes out very clearly to me looking at the um uh passage you know whereas the conquest of exodus is is uh the, sorry the conquest of Canaan uh, are these great uh, giant like characters whom god will give israel the faith to overcome these are unsuspecting people living a quiet existence that don't want to bother the israelites particularly and um the danites don't have the faith to do the hard work but take this um take this option out instead. And this is something, this idea of a, a counterfeit pattern has been to me, it strikes me as a, a very fruitful way of reading all sorts of passages in, in scripture. Very often you come across these illusions and, and you think, well, why would there be uh, an illusion here to the Exodus or to the establishment of a temple or something. This seems a completely different, like godless activity. And and the idea of a counterfeit um, pattern, I, I think, is a, a very helpful one. We can also think of cases where it's not necessarily a counterfeit pattern, but there's something abortive or failed about the pattern or limited in its success. For instance, the story of chapter 19 of Genesis, where there is There are a series of references to the Exodus pattern. You can think about the way that there is a sort of Passover celebration, unleavened bread eaten in this meal, and then there's a threat at the doorway, and then the angels protecting the people, and within the house they're preserved, taken by the hand, moved out of the city, taken to the mountain. But then we can also see, particularly when read back-to-back with chapter 18, In that chapter, we have the visitation of the angels to Abraham and Sarah. There is a promise of life in the doorway. The barren wife is made fruitful. And in chapter 19, we have a very similar pattern, but inverted. And so there are um, visitors at night. um, Lot is in the gate of the city rather than in the doorway of the tent. There is a threat of death in the doorway of the house rather than the promise of life. And the wife is made into a pillar of salt, as barren as you can imagine, whereas um, Sarai is made fruitful. And then the chapter ends in this very negative note with the birth of um, Moab and Ammon through this incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. So we've got a pattern there that has something of the positive elements of the story of the Exodus, but also something's abortive, something's failed there. Another example that Jim gives in his discussion of First Samuel is the story of Saul and the witch of Endor. There is a sort of Passover meal, a midnight meal, and um, there is the death of the firstborn, the battle that follows. So it seems that there is this larger pattern that can play out as a straightforward inversion, as something that is a variation upon the theme that has a negative element to it. And then as a very positive development, for instance, the Ark in the land of the Philistines in um, the period after the Battle of Aphek. That is a very positive rendition, as it were, of the theme of Exodus. And so in that example, Alistair, what what would you um, take from that as a reader then? So uh, the example of Lot, let's say, and his deliverance from Sodom. So yeah, there's a, a not quite successful 
exodus but kind of how, how is that um uh what yeah what are you gaining from that how how is that influencing your reading of that story that you wouldn't have without the pattern well i think in that case we have two different patterns we have the juxtaposition between chapters 18 and 19 and then we also have the exodus pattern and i think this is one of the features of biblical literature that enables us to arrive at far more ambivalent judgments of certain characters judgments that are far more complex than straightforward good and bad judgments. Now, this is one of the things that I think Jim has helpfully argued against in people's reading of the stories of the patriarchs. Very often we have simplistic judgments. For instance, Abraham, as a result of his lack of faith, does not tell Pharaoh about the fact that Sarai is his wife. Or um, Jacob is clearly a man who lacks faith and he's not a, he's just a, a wicked deceiver. And then he has a conversion experience later on, obviously. That's not reading the text very closely. But yet when we read the text closely, I think we're able to arrive at far more complex and nuanced judgments of these characters that aren't straightforwardly, this character is good, this character is bad, this action is a faithful one, this is an unfaithful one. We can recognize something of God's redemption, for instance, in the situation of Lot, but also recognize that Lot has become far too associated with the city of Sodom. And so in some respects, his experience is a a cautionary one. Even though he's saved, he might be like some of the Israelites that are saved and perish in the wilderness. He ends up in a cave, um, almost experiencing a sort of living death. He seems like he's the last man left standing. There's been this great um, cataclysm, which I think most likely was some sort of meteorite strike or something. Um, There's been recent archaeological discoveries that would seem to give weight to that. And when we read the story in that way, we can see the way that Lot is not straightforwardly one of the Sodomites. He is a faithful man in certain respects and we can see that within the New Testament, the way that he's spoken of in Second Peter, I think it is. And yet, on the other hand, he's juxtaposed with Abraham. And so those sorts of judgments are made possible by these far more complex interplays of patterns, variations upon themes. And as a result, I think we are given a far richer reading of texts and instructed far more in our faith than we would be if we're just looking who are the bad guys, who are the good guys. Yeah, and to add to that, I think the recognizing the, the twist that you have on this common story, that is the point of the story often. I've used the example of the three little pigs in, in uh, Deep Exegesis. You have the same sequence of events three times. The first two pigs, uh, the, the wolf successfully blows down the house. Uh, but the twist the, and the point of the story is found in the last. But you can't tell the story without the first two because you don't you don't know what the setup is and you don't know what uh, how the third pig is acting wisely until you see him acting in contrast to the others. You don't see the difference of the outcome. And so uh, I think part of it is that the, the contrast often becomes the very point of the story. The example I was thinking of was the the sort of exodus you have at the beginning of uh, in the early chapters of First Samuel. Uh, where you have all the elements of an exodus. You have the Philistines who are uh, related to uh, the the Egyptians, as we find out in Genesis 10. Uh, You have plagues. You have uh, the Philistines remembering the exodus uh, and remembering what Israel did to Egypt when when, uh, Hophni and Phinehas bring the ark out onto the the, uh, field. Uh, But then uh, what actually happens is instead of being Israel being captured, what you have is the ark gets captured. Yahweh's ark is almost doing battle with Dagon. He's bringing plagues on all of the Philistine cities while the ark, while his, while the Lord's throne is in exile, the Lord is bringing plagues. And you almost have a kind of substitutionary uh, curse idea that uh, Yahweh himself is taking the curse of exile, uh, fighting the battles of his people as as he will do in the book of Daniel. We talked about this when we went through Daniel. The uh, temple furnishings are placed in storage somewhere until the fateful night when Belshazzar brings them all out and tries to appeal to his false gods using the uh, 
using the implements of temple worship. I think James described it as kind of a time bomb set in Babylon, um, you know, just ticking away there until Belshazzar brings it out. So uh, the fact that you the fact that you can see an Exodus story in the early chapters of of Samuel, but then see the twist of the Exodus story that that really is the point of the ex, of this particular Exodus story that, that this is uh, Yahweh taking taking exile on behalf of his people and defeating his enemies without their aid, without their participation at all, by bearing the, the bearing the curse of exile on himself. And I think something similar. I mean, Jeroboam uh, Jeroboam is an example of a of a counterfeit exodus. That's one that Jim uh, bring, calls attention to. Uh, and very much you find, if you follow the storyline of Jeroboam, it's the story of uh, Joseph. It's a story of David. And he beca- uh, Jeroboam is a kind of counterfeit David, a counterfeit Moses. He's a counterfeit Joseph going into service in Egypt, and he's a counterfeit Moses coming out. He's a counterfeit Moses when he confronts Rehoboam, uh, let my people go, let, uh, uh, let my people be free. Uh, and then he's a counterfeit Moses when he goes out to the northern kingdom and sets up golden calves because he's become a kind of uh, become a kind of new Aaron setting up uh, idolatrous worship in the northern kingdom. Uh, so again, the the seeing those seeing an Exodus story going on there and then seeing the twist, that's the point that you have this uh, you have this kind of you have an Israel, but this Israel uh, led by Jeroboam has become kind of an inverted image of what Israel is supposed to be. And recognizing the way in which scripture does this, the way in which scripture establishes a pattern and then varies certain details or inverts certain details, I think can be a very helpful thing to um, have in mind because then we don't fall into this mindset of wanting to um, overpress similarities or to try and force every Exodus like story into exactly the same mold, but we can just freely take the texts as they are and and note the differences and and then try and unpack them and and why they're happening. And and I I think that's something that Jim brings out very very nicely in this chapter. And if we were to listen to any piece of music and it were just playing the same theme again and again and again in exactly the same way, it would be pointless. And yet the subtle variations and developments and explorations and um, inversions of themes make a piece interesting and illuminating and um, intriguing in ways that no mere repetition could ever aspire to be. And so when we're reading scripture, we'll often see arresting inversions of themes. If you're reading Matthew chapter two, for instance, it is a Jewish king or a king in Jerusalem, at least, an Idumean, who's trying to kill the baby boys. He's the Pharaoh type figure. And yet the magicians in the court are people who have traveled following the light to arrive and worship the the child, the newborn king. And so whereas we had the opposing magicians in the court of Pharaoh, now the magicians are coming to worship. And whereas in the story of the Exodus, Israel is brought out of Egypt, here the young child and his parents flee into Egypt. And so although there is this allusion back to Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Here it is the return from from Egypt as a site of refuge. And those sorts of inversions get our attention. They also help us to see something about the state that Israel has fallen into. It gives us an indication of God's salvation going out to the Gentiles and the way in which that history of the redemption back in the story of Moses and Aaron and the people being brought to Sinai, etc. That's being replayed here. And the destiny of the people is still at stake, but now it's being encapsulated in Jesus Christ. And so all of these ways of telling the story bear the meaning and give us an indication of the way things are going in the longer term. In the Magi, we see something, for instance, of the kings bringing in the treasure of the nations that's foretold in Isaiah. And then when we go to the end of scripture, that image is taken up again in the, the city that takes in the riches of the nations. I think there's also a pastoral uh, practical dimension to this. Um, the, these patterns are not just literary patterns in the Bible, but they're patterns of history and the God who uh, repeatedly brings his people out of slavery in an exodus is the same God that we worship. He's the the Father of Jesus Christ. Um, 
And we can think about um, when we see these recurring patterns, just think about it in terms of what's happening in within the canon itself. So Israel goes into Goshen, perhaps had texts written about the patriarchs. Certainly they had stories, even if they didn't have, te- have texts. Uh, and they would know that uh, their ancestors had been in Egypt already, and they would be assuring themselves. Uh, they, I mean, they they would know the Lord's the Lord's promise to Abraham included years of slavery to uh, in a foreign land. They would know the story of Abraham. They would know the story of Jacob, and they would understand uh, what the Lord was going to do with them, or they could anticipate what the Lord is going to do with them while they are in this foreign land. Uh, he's not going to abandon them. He's not a God uh, that's confined to the the uh, promised land. His power and his authority extends to Egypt. Uh, and as the Lord brought Abraham safely out of Egypt, and not only safely, but enriched, that's what he's going to do again. And then you project that into uh, the Christian era, and you think about various, various uh, situations where believers are in conditions of slavery. Uh, I think in the American context, of course, of the way that Exodus, uh, the Exodus story, uh, figures into the imagination of American African Americans, uh, and how many African American spirituals are uh, spirituals that are about the hope for Exodus and the hope for liberation, and how much the they're sustaining themselves through the period of uh, of black slavery in the United States. How much of that was carried by and sustained by these stories of Exodus? This is the God who's done this before. He's going to do us do it again. Uh, you, I mean, that's that's part of the rhetoric of the uh, the civil rights movement in the United States. Also, it's an this is an exodus for uh, the uh, African American people. I wanted to highlight a, a couple other things too. There's um, J- Jim has a striking again uh, kind of practical way of describing what the patriarchs are up to, and particularly Abraham. Uh, he talks about Abraham as uh, entering the land, establishing altars, not just so he can worship God, but he establishes altars at certain locations so that he can call the residents of the land, the inhabitants of the land, to worship the living God along with him. Jim describes it as a form of of evangelism. He also describes it as a kind of uh, proto-conquest. Abraham doesn't, uh, Abraham fights against uh, the enemies, uh, this alliance of kings uh, in Genesis 13, and he delivers Lot. So he he has a military force uh, in his entourage, but um, He's, he's not ruling the land. He becomes a great prince. He's recognized as a father, but he doesn't rule the land. Uh, but he's traveling around, setting up these altars, these altars that are linked with trees and oases. Uh, he lives at, in those oases locations for uh, significant lengths of time. So these become kind of established places of residence and places of worship. So you have this strange man coming from Ur the Chaldees. He comes and settles in your land and he's worshiping this God that you've never heard of. And Abraham is supposed to be a missionary to the Gentiles. He's supposed to bring blessing to the Gentiles, not just in the long distant future, but in his own lifetime. So um, that I think that's a really, all that, that whole package of ideas that uh, Abraham is an evangelist, that Abraham is calling other people to worship, that he's engaged in a shadow conquest that precedes the uh, military conquest of Joshua. I think those are all very rich, uh, practical and pastoral ideas. I mean, you think about uh, a a situation uh, like our own culturally, where it seems, if you think in political terms, trying to to turn the tide of a culture that's gone into um, uh, high levels of rebellion against God and his word, how do you you turn that ship? What we find in in Genesis is, uh, if Genesis didn't exist, we would not know that Abraham had even been there. He's not a great conqueror. He's not. Uh, he's not uh, going to have monuments with his ex- his military exploits on them. He's just setting up places of worship, but those places of worship are uh, like God's claim on the land. And eventually, the Lord is going to take the land and give it to give it to His people. And that that gives a a confidence for Christians in 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 our time uh, to think uh, more deeply and more confidently about uh, what we're doing when we're going about our apparently small-scale, hidden acts of worship and evangelism, uh, what that's actually, what that, how that actually contributes to the advancement of God's kingdom in the world. One thing we should probably mention at this point is that Jordan has a book on the patriarchs, Primeval Saints, that is very helpful in filling out the picture 
And so I'd very highly recommend that as a very accessible book on this period of history. I think the other thing that I found Jordan opening my eyes to is beyond the fact that he's getting people to worship and setting up sites of worship throughout the land, he also has a large group of people around him. He's the head of a sheikdom. He has um, 318 fighting men in chapter 14. And there are many chapters after that and many different peoples that will have joined with him at various points. This helps to un- us to understand, for instance, why it would have been very attractive, not just because Sarah is beautiful, but to have um, Sarah as your wife of some of these kings, because they could become the leader of this sheepdom. They could um, take control of this particular body of people. And so it's not just... Uh, small um, group of people, Abraham and his wife, and um, later on, Hagar and Ishmael, um, going around in tents. This is a large group of people with their flocks and herds. And as we're working through this, I think it also helps us to recognize that this is something that fits in its historical setting. And just as spoken, as N.T. Wright has spoken about the importance of seeing Jesus in the heat and the dust of first century Israel, we need to see Abraham within the heat and the dust of his Israel and his context in Canaan, that he's going around with this larger group of people, and that this is a historical narrative that when we read these details and pay attention to this broader picture, it helps to make sense of episodes that otherwise might have something of the flavor of the mythological and legendary about them. But when we understand the text with this attention to the details, we can read it through new eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.